Welcome back to the Bible Brush Up podcast. On today's episode, we are going to be looking at some of the content from the book of Exodus. We've finished the book of Genesis, the first book of the Torah, and we're now on to book number two. And in book number two, there's a lot of material, but I want to just hit some of the highlights of the first 15 or so chapters that we've been reading uh, over the last couple of weeks. I'm going to look first of all at the call of Moses, and then I want to get into Zipporah and the circumcision story that has caused so much confusion, and I probably won't clear any of that up, but at least we'll talk about it some. And then I want to get to the ten plagues and conclude today with a brief discussion on sacred space. So let's dive in. Uh, The call of Moses is very interesting in the fact that Moses is outside of Um, the promised land outside of Israel. It's outside of Egypt where all the other Israelites are, and Moses has now gone into the land of Midian. Now, Midian is a descendant of Abraham. If you recall the genealogies that we've looked at in the past, uh, one of the genealogies we probably didn't talk about specifically is that of Abraham's uh, second wife. And so he takes another wife after Sarah dies, and one of the children is Midian. And so the Midianites come from Abraham, just like the Israelites come from Abraham. And so Moses goes over there, and he acquires a wife named Zipporah. And uh, while he's out tending sheep and doing his shepherding thing, he encounters a burning bush. And he talks with the angel of the Lord. Uh, Soon after that, it just transitions to saying God spoke. And so um, this is a side note, but I believe the angel of the Lord is the second person of the Trinity, uh, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Um, Before he becomes Jesus Christ, this would be the Son of God pre-incarnate. And the reason I believe that is because oftentimes people bow down and worship when the angel of the Lord speaks. And and, in encounters like this, where the angel of the Lord appears, there is an easy, smooth transition between them talking to the angel of the Lord and them talking to God, the angel of the Lord speaking, God speaking. And I don't think that would be true with just any angelic being because angels are not God. But the angel of the Lord seems to have a significance far beyond just being a messenger of God. But that aside, the call of Abraham is at a place called Horeb, And they call it there in chapter 3 of Exodus, the mountain of God. And as they're conversing, Moses inquires about what the name of God is. Because attaching a name with the deity was important. There were so many different gods on the table, especially in a land like Egypt, uh, where they worshipped the sun god, and they worshipped the river god, and they worshipped a multitude of gods. Polytheism is central to... Egyptian life. And furthermore, the God even of Israel had been known by different names. There are several names already in the narrative as we've gone through Genesis. They call him Yahweh. They refer to him as Elohim. Um, There's a reference to him as El Shaddai. So each of these names has a distinct meaning. And when asked what he should be called, the name given is in English, I am that what I am, but this is just a derivative of the name Yahweh. He's going back to the covenant name of God that had been shared with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And uh, really, probably the best translation of that tense or, or use of Yahweh here is I 
cause to be. So he is the cause of what's going to happen. He is sovereign over the affairs of men. He is in control, is basically what his name means there. But it is a covenant name that will be used going forward uh, quite often. Many times in your Bibles, you may see the word Lord in capital letters. And anytime you see that, that is the name Yahweh. That's how they depict it in the English, to set it apart from just a common use of the word Lord or Master. Um, but this call of Moses is now associated and attached to the name Yahweh. He is using Moses as a vessel, and though Moses is very reluctant and he gives every excuse in the book why he shouldn't be the one to go and shouldn't do what he's called to do, God isn't going to have it any other way. Yahweh is going to use him as inadequate as he may be to accomplish his work. Uh, the purpose of sending Moses, the purpose of them going is not only to answer the prayers of the people who are crying out because of the severe suffrage that they're going through, the, the pain and agony of being an oppressed people, but the purpose is really found in chapter 3, verse 12, where he wants to bring the people out to serve God. He wants to pull them out of Egypt so they can go and serve him wherever he causes them uh, to go. So moving on to the Zipporah episode, this is found in chapter 4 of Exodus and verse 24, and it says this, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now this is seems to be out of nowhere. This is just, you're reading along, everything seems to make sense, and all of a sudden this is thrown right in the middle of the narrative, and you are scratching your head wondering, what was that all about? And I'm not going to be able to ease that tension uh, much because there are so many different viewpoints of what is going on here, and when you actually get some of the facts, it just confuses you even more. So for one, if you were reading an NIV, it probably said something like this, at a lodging place on the way the Lord met Moses and sought to put Moses to death, or put him to death, referring to Moses. Well, the word Moses isn't in this narrative at all, in, in this passage rather, at all. It's just pronouns. So it says the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Well, who is him? Who are we talking about? And so Zipporah, to make this negative circumstance go away, she ends up circumcising her firstborn son. And his name is Gershom. And so she's cutting off the foreskins, and then it says, touching Moses's feet with it. The ESV reads Moses there, but there's a little footnote that says his, because once again, the name Moses isn't in the Hebrew account of this. It's been placed there to help clear up who they think it's talking about, but we don't even know that. It could be another reference back to the firstborn son. It could be Gershom's feet. And furthermore, the word feet if you read some of the commentaries, you'll find out that that is oftentimes used as a euphemism for genitalia. And so it could be that she's touching the foreskins to the genitalia. And we don't know if it's Moses's or if it's the firstborn son's. So it's very confusing, complexing, 
And then, to make it even more complexing, her statement, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. That word bridegroom there doesn't always mean bridegroom. That is also the word for son-in-law. And so it's like, is she disowning her son because of this? Or does she feel like an outsider because of this? Is she the good guy here or is she the bad guy here? It seems like she certainly prevents the death of somebody. God is displeased with somebody, and it seems that circumcision is the cure. Now, if you go back to the Abrahamic covenant, which we had a whole episode on how important that is going forward, there are statements in the Abrahamic covenant that said that if you are not circumcised, if your people aren't circumcised, they will be cut off. And so it could be that this is a situation where Moses has gone outside of his people group. He's raised as an Egyptian, so maybe he's forgotten about the importance of circumcision. He marries a Midianite woman, and so their children are born, and now he's going to be traveling back to his land, and they don't want to travel with a bunch of uh, bloody, injured boys. And so maybe he just forgets about or neglects the role of circumcision in his life. But God's about to call him to go in and save the Israelites, the people of Abraham, the people of circumcision. And I don't know how much they have emphasized circumcision at this point. I know there are accounts along the way in the wilderness where people are circumcised. And before they go into the promised land, people are circumcised. So I don't think that it's very um, well kept. It's not a well kept custom. Uh, but to some degree, it was very important, and especially for the leader of the Israelites and his family to go in. Now, there's one other thing I think is important looking at this. Right before this passage, God is reiterating what's going to happen with Pharaoh. He says in verse 22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord of Israel, Is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And if you recall, what happens with the plagues is it's that final plague where everyone that has not put the blood above the doorpost, uh, so basically everyone outside of Goshen, where the Israelites were encamped, everyone loses their firstborn son. I think what God's doing here is he's saying, listen, I'm about to kill all the non-Israelite firstborns. And here you are coming into this whole scenario, this entire story, all of these plagues with sons who have not been circumcised. So they aren't a part of the people of God because he told Abraham that anyone not circumcised would not be a part of the people of God. Shortly after this, he's going to institute the Passover feast, and he says, no one who has not been, uh, no one who lacks circumcision can partake of it. If you haven't been circumcised, you cannot partake of the Passover feast. So you are an outsider if you have not been circumcised. So here Moses is coming into the people of God and he's going to confront the Pharaoh to let God's people go. But if he does that without even circumcising his own household, his own kids, well, that's a reason for God to be displeased. And so whether he is displeased against Moses and he's going to put him to death or whether he's going to be putting 
the Son to death, which might be the better translation here. Um, either way, we see that God wants circumcision and that it is important, and Zipporah stands up and does what is necessary in order for it to be done. Whether she was happy with the custom, whether she was against it, I'm not sure. You would think that even the Midianites, um, I think historically, they practiced circumcision. So this wasn't something new to her. It wasn't like the first time she'd ever heard of circumcision. Uh, even the Egyptians practiced a form of circumcision, though it was not a total circumcision. It was a partial circumcision. Um, and so that's hopefully gives you a little bit of insight into this account of Zipporah and the circumcision. But we'll move on from there, since that's very complex, and go to something a little easier, and that's the ten plagues. As Moses comes into Egypt, he begins to show the power of God, and the ten plagues are really a way of humiliating Pharaoh, the Egyptians, and their gods. He's humiliating Pharaoh because Pharaoh believes himself to be the god of the world, basically, and to be all-powerful and to have um, no accountability to anyone. And so Moses shows up in the power of God, and he's going to bring Pharaoh to his knees. That's what I mean by humiliate. It's not just make him look stupid, but to actually humble him. And uh, along the way, we see this expression that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And one of the reasons that God continues to harden Pharaoh's heart is so that all the world can watch God's power on display to show and prove who is actually in control. And it brings not only Pharaoh to humility, it brings the Egyptians to humility uh, to a point where when the, Egypt, uh, when the Israelites are leaving, they're like giving them all their gold and silver and they're saying, go, 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 you guys... You guys have God on your side, and we just support whatever it is that he wants you to do. Take this gold and silver with our blessing. And the Israelites plunder the Egyptians in that way, and they end up pretty wealthy because of that. And so in the wilderness, they have gold and they have silver. Um, we'll talk more about that later. But the other thing it does is it confronts the Egyptian gods, because the Egyptians worshipped the Nile, they worshipped the sun, and we see several of these plagues really go after those gods. It, it goes after the Nile, and then it turns the Nile to blood, and it no longer becomes a source of life for the Egyptians. There's no longer fish to be caught. There's no longer, um, you know, the, the water to drink and that resource to uh, meet their needs. And then the sun is darkened. It becomes completely dark and black, and that is an attack on their deity, the cattle dying. They worshiped some cow gods, and so that was an attack on their deity. The attack on the plants, the hail, the, the weather. You know, God is in control of the weather. He's in control of, of it all, and then for the firstborn of Pharaoh to die, that was an attack on their future god, because since Pharaoh was the god of the world, he was um, going to have his spirit, his deity passed on through the bloodline, and now the firstborn is dead. And so it brings them to humility, and the Israelites escape. The death of the firstborn becomes very significant for our Bible reading, because God later is going to demand that the firstborn of every Israelite be redeemed and given to him, and that's eventually going to play out in the creation of the priesthood, uh, where God is going to take the Levites in place of the firstborn sons, and they stand as a reminder that God spared the firstborns back in Egypt. 
The final thing I want to talk about today is sacred space. And sacred space is simply places where God sets up communication. And I had one um, professor who supervised my dissertation who wrote a book called Go Now to Shiloh, and he kind of dissects these sacred spaces into three particular uh, methods of communication. The first one he compares to a telegram, where God just, it's a one-time event. You send a telegram to somebody, they get it once, they open it, they read it, it's done. So the call of Abraham, when he goes and he talks to Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, these are one-time events, they're one and done. But then there's another type that's more like a phone booth. And so Bethel is a good example of that. Jacob goes to Bethel. Abraham built an altar at Bethel. Jacob returns later to Bethel. This is where he sees the ladder uh, going up and down with angels ascending and descending, and he calls this place Bethel because that's the house of God. He says, surely God is in this place, and I didn't know it. So he calls it the house of God. And you can return to this same location over and over and commune with God here in ways that you couldn't in other places. So it's like a phone booth. You could go to the phone booth and you could make a call. Uh, you couldn't make the call, you know, 40 feet away from the phone booth. You had to go to the phone booth to make the call. There was a hard wire there between heaven and earth. Now, it doesn't stay forever, just like phone booths. They sometimes eventually get torn down. In fact, I think we had the last phone booth, the last operational phone booth tore down just the other day. But now we move to a more portable mode of transportation and communion with God, and that's in the tabernacle. And that's going to happen very soon in our reading. Moses is going to be instructed to build a tabernacle, and it's going to be there in that sacred space where God communes with his people. Now, as New Testament believers, we are thankful that we don't have to operate off of phone booths or telegrams. Um, we have the most portable of all communion with God, and that is through our indwelling spirit. So he is with us always. We have an open communion with God at all times as believers in the New Testament. The veil has been torn down, and we have access to the Father at all times. So make use of that today. Talk to God, commune with God, walk with God, talk with God, and I hope this blesses you and your day, and we'll see you next time on The Bible Project.